0: Peter Kingsley, welcome back to The New School.
1: Thank you, Michael.
0: Peter, you have a, a wonderful new book out called A Story Waiting to Pierce You, Mongolia, Tibet, and the Destiny of the Western World. How would you describe the purpose you had in writing this book?
1: Oh, good Lord. I discovered while I was writing it that there are layers and layers and levels and levels, and it's very, very hard to really try and sum it up. This is something I was pondering recently. On one level, it is a story which is documented at the end of the book in a lot of detail to show that this is not just a story, but it is a story of things that happened over 2,000 years ago. In fact, over 2,500 years ago, people who actually came all the way from Eastern Central Asia from the area now we would call Mongolia all the way to the Mediterranean specifically to meet with Pythagoras in Italy and so on one level it is an account of shamans from basically Eastern Central Asia coming all the way unimaginable distances in a way that we could hardly have considered possible to meet with people in the West So that's a geographical, if you like, a cultural story. And then there is the other story behind that, which is about how civilizations really come into being. What was this one person that the book is mainly about? What was he doing? Why did he come so far? I mean, we know how he came. I describe the way in which he could walk so far, the techniques that are still very common up until at least a generation ago in Tibet. And as well as the how, there is the why, there is the the purpose to help to bring civilization into existence, to help to plant the seeds, to help to activate what was to become Western culture. And so this becomes, if you like, much more mysterious, much more esoteric. It's describing the process in which civilizations come into existence, and also the process in which civilizations are maintained preserved and also the process by which civilizations actually are consciously brought to an end because that too is necessary we have to clear the decks we forget about the importance of finishing we're very very conscious especially in modern western culture of beginnings because the ego loves beginnings but we forget about the importance of finishing things of tidying up so there are already two levels there and then there is another level which is the level on which the book is working on the reader, and I found it very interesting that the first person who really understood this was a wonderful Native American, Joseph Ryle, who very kindly wrote the foreword to this book, and he understood that this story essentially it's not just a story, it is an incantation. It is, if you like, a piece of magic, It is a particular work of magic, that is how I work. It's like a spell coming through the words, and that has an effect on the reader in certain ways that the reader may glimpse or may not be aware of at all. It's actually working on the reader in an energetic way. And whatever a person thinks about it, whether they don't like it or they disagree or they're moved by it, it doesn't really matter because something else is happening through the words.
0: In this extraordinary book, you bring to bear all of your deep, deep experience as a philosopher who has studied early Greek and many related traditions, all of the academic, historiographic, bibliographic knowledge that you have. But you use it in a way that is completely different from conventional historiography and conventional history of science and history of philosophy. You are speaking, as it were, from within the tradition that you are describing, it seems to me.
1: Yes, but to me this is connected to what I just tried to describe. You see, something that really, really started to grow on me over many years Basically, since as a teenager I began to study these ancient Greeks and read their texts and essentially let the ancient Greeks read me because it's not a one way street, was that we live now in Western civilization, this particular stage of Western culture now, we live in a world of substitutes. We live in a world of substitutes upon substitutes upon substitutes. And we don't really see or understand that. So, for example, I used to be quite heavily involved in the academic world. I'm not so much now. And people say, okay, well, what happened to you? Why did you have to divert and follow off on this strange course and leave academia behind? Well, I've never left scholarship or the rigors of scholarship behind. On the contrary, I've actually followed those rigors. I've taken scholarship as a discipline seriously. To me, any discipline is a spiritual discipline. And scholarship, as we know, it has certain rigors, but those are not actually followed. So I don't want to be disrespectful or rude about much of scholarship, but the fact is that not only now, but you even see, say, in Plato, he has an amazing book. It's book six of his Republic, written well over 2,000 years ago, where he talks about the dangers of studying philosophy, the dangers of teaching philosophy, how one can get caught in the world, how one can get caught in all sorts of things. I have never, ever met a scholar who will teach that to his students, because it would put us all on the spot, just like Socrates, who went around questioning people in Athens to the extent that he was actually put to death for being such a nuisance. I don't see any scholars really taking philosophy that far. They go into it a little, and then they let their prejudices, their biases, their conventional wisdoms come in, and they don't pursue the wisdom in the texts that they're studying, to the logical conclusion. And so basically, I'm very, very happy to have debates with scholars, but not many want to debate with me, because we don't really know what it is to follow things through all the way anymore. And I think that this is one of the tricks about where we've gone wrong, if you like, in modern civilization, that we've spread out too far we don't really understand the importance of staying with the discipline and sticking with it all the way. So I used scholarship to, if you like, break the nut of ancient Greek philosophy, what really is inside the kernel there. And there is no alternative once you come to that, when you start to see that these ancient Greek fragments of amazingly powerful, beautiful poetry are there to they, they were written to affect us, to move us, to change us, to transform us, to inspire us. And you can't just stand back and pretend to be objective. There is no such thing. One has to go right, right into the core, and then the understanding comes.
0: Now, when you wrote your new book, you were already the author of three other books, Ancient Philosophy, Mystery and Magic in the dark places of wisdom and reality. And I found myself, as I read a story waiting to pierce you, going back to your major book before that, Reality. And just to give the listener a sense of some of the quotes about reality, Houston Smith, author of The World's Religions and Forgotten Truth, called it stunningly original, Reality is Momentous in Its Implications. Robert Johnson, who wrote He, She, and other books, said it was extraordinarily valuable, a key to the modern world impasse. And Larry Dossie and others have praised it, as they have praised your new book. But in reality, the book Reality, you write particularly about Parmenides and Empedocles and the world they lived in. And you just referred to the fragments that have been left for us. And I think you may have been referring in part to the fragments that you interpret from Parmenides and Empedocles in reality. And what I wanted to understand, and help me because I'm sort of moving toward an understanding of it, but I'm not there yet, is that in the new book, A Story Waiting to Pierce You, the Skywalker, the Mongolian shaman who comes to the West to meet Pythagoras is, as, as I understand, an incarnation of Apollo, who is coming to meet Pythagoras, who is also an incarnation of Apollo. And he is being brought to the West, as you said, to, to found Western
1: civilization.
0: Now, I may have some of that wrong, so please correct me. But do I have essentially the message correct?
1: Oh yes, in the essentials, yes.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, how does Pythagoras and the tradition that comes out of Pythagoras as the Hyperborean Apollo, Hyperborean mean the language that describes the land of Mongolia and Tibet from which the Skywalker comes, connect to Parmenides and Empedocles. That's the place that I don't yet understand the linkage fully.
1: Well... Again, I have to go back to what I said at the start, which is that there are different levels to this book. And what I was very careful to emphasize in this new book is not that the Mongolian brings Western civilization, but that he comes to activate Western civilization. He is there, as it were, as an outsider to confirm and to transmit a certain authority and a certain power which allows Western civilization to start to flower. It's a very, very mysterious encounter, and I describe the symbolism of what he's carrying and the role that it had in shamanic traditions. And i just like to emphasize something here which is so important to me, and that is that where I describe the significance of bringing an arrow, this particular type of arrow that this Mongolian was carrying, and giving it to Pythagoras. We have the reports of this in ancient Greek texts and traditions, but the Greeks didn't understand any longer the significance of handing over an arrow. And this is one of the many, many aspects of the book which, hidden away, I state them, but I'm not sure how clearly people will understand, and that is that there was a tremendous sense of right behavior, a tremendous sense of symbolism and action. In Islam it's called adab, correct behavior, that there are certain things that need to be done at the right time and in the right place, and they carry a certain power and a certain element, a crucial element an essence of transmission. And These actions, these gestures, if you like, they have to be done in a state of respectfulness and in a state of openness in a state of recognition of what's happening. And this precision is something that we just don't really understand anymore in the West. It's the delicacy of it, the intricacy of what really happened. It's not that the Mongol was bringing Western civilization. It's not that Western civilization came from the East. No, it's more subtle than that. There were people in the East who had to come like the Magi had to come at the birth of Christ. They had to come to be there, to witness something, to activate something, to make something possible, to be there, to witness it at the beginning. And how we get into this about what is East and what is West, I'll just say this, that for me, Empedocles, Parmenides, have always, always inwardly been connected with Central Asia. And this is something I wasn't able to understand until I started to write this book.
0: Uh-huh. So this really emerged from you in the course of writing this book.
1: It was there latently. It was there You see, basically this new book was essentially putting down on paper what I glimpsed when I was writing the earlier books. And this is the way that my books always evolve, that there's always something behind the scenes. It's like I always see my books as a landscape. So to begin with, before I even start to write a book, I actually see the whole book as a landscape. And that helps me to plot out the structure and to allow what needs to be described to be described. Basically for me writing is like painting. But there are certain details like there may be a squirrel in a tree or an owl in a tree and I may just sketch it because I'm doing a whole landscape but then I may have to come back to that in another book and do a close-up of that particular creature which is what this book really was. You'll notice that there is a reference in reality and also in In the Dark Places of Wisdom, which was published in 1999, to this transmission from Mongolia to Pythagoreanism. It's in both of those books, tucked away. But I didn't have time to get to it, and it wasn't the time for me. Mm -hmm.
0: So, let's go back to the sort of explicit story described in a story waiting to pierce you for a few minutes. As you describe it then, the Skywalker from Mongolia, and I think it's an important correction that you offered, he comes to, to witness, could we say to catalyze as well as witness something in Pythagoras, or is he simply a witness to Pythagoras?
1: Yes, we can say catalyze maybe. I would say it's more to do with witnessing and recognizing and being there to enable in a mysterious way something to happen. hmm
0: And was it only in Mongolia that this pure shamanic tradition had its origins? You describe the Mongolian shamanic impulse and its purity also being transmitted to North America and to Native American communities as well as into Greece. I suppose my question is whether you see the pure shamanic impulse that you're describing being of Mongolian origin or with Mircea Eliade and Michael Harner, when they speak of shamanism, as I understand, they describe it as an original impulse of all original peoples, which I think it's Harner who says that it is sort of part of the bedrock of humanity like the incest taboo, because only shamanism and the incest taboo are culturally invariant in all original peoples around the world. So my question is, is the shamanic impulse out of Mongolia in some sense unique for you, or do you see it as the common heritage of original peoples?
1: This is now an issue which could be put another way, which is the debate that has been going on a long while about when there are similarities, say, in religious practices and beliefs among people in different parts of the world, are these similarities due to geographical, physical transmission, or are they due to, if you like, the Jungian collective archetypes, which allow the same phenomena, the same manifestations to appear spontaneously in different parts of the world, maybe at different times? And I think that really here we are getting stuck in our own categories. You see, coming back to this question about East and West and Central Asia and Greece and Parmenides and Empedocles and Western philosophy versus Eastern Central Asia, these are distinctions that we have created. If you look at reality, if you look at the world through the eyes of Apollo, through that particular perception of oneness, which we can experience. I refer to it quite often in the book as ecstasy, because that to me is the best word to describe it. Everything is one. Everything is one. And this is something also that Parmenides in his Greek texts refers to. And this is something that I try to explain at great length in the book, Reality, For Parmenides, who was very closely connected in Greece with Apollo, everything is one. Everything is available to us now at this moment. All of reality is accessible to us. There is no distance, and this is something again that Parmenides very, very specifically says. There is no separation between us and the horizon or something beyond the horizon. Everything is one. Our perception, even our sense perception, our sense of sight shows us. If we can see the moon, on the full moon, we and the moon are one. There is no separation between us. It's just the mind that creates that sense of a separation, which actually isn't real. And that is the perception, that is the reality of, if you like, this consciousness which belongs to Apollo, is very much associated with him and very unique to him. Everything is one. Now, when we get into the more universalist approach versus the the more geographically precise or geographically specific origins or points of focus of shamanism, I work with the specific because what I have been shown, what I've been taught, is that you can always find, as Blake said, you can find the universe in a grain of sand. The universe is always contained in the specific if you see the specific rightly. And so for me, generalizations are a kind of a problem that we have ended up with in the West. Generalizations, they don't have the power, they don't have the immediacy of specificity. Reality is always specific. This is why Zen tradition focuses so much on the very specific gestures and encounters, because when reality hits us, it is always specific. And for me, something that I was actually shown inwardly through personal experiences, and then I came to discover confirmation of this externally, is that the Altai Mountains in Central Asia, extraordinarily, extraordinarily important. And we can see this through various archaeological remains, what was really going on there, just little tastes. That is the Altai Mountains. Mongolia is obviously to the east, beyond the Altai Mountains from the point of view of Europe. But let me be clear, when I use the word Mongolia or Mongol in the book... We're talking about a geographical area. We're talking not about a nation as yet, we're talking about a geographical area. And around there, Mongolia, Siberia, there were tremendous, tremendous things happening and around the Altai Mountains, around the Gobi Desert as well. Very, very ancient traditions, which quite a lot of esoteric writers and authorities latched onto. And this is because there really were very, very Wonderful ancient wisdom traditions there in those places, which also had a profound effect on Central Asian Sufism, which is not very much talked about because we like to talk of Sufism as a purely Islamic phenomenon. But it was not, there were many, many influences that came into, say, the Naqshbandi tradition in Central Asia, which are shamanic, which are pre Islamic, and are very, very powerful
0: you, in addition to your four books and several dozen original academic articles, you also translated Claude Adas' extraordinary biography of the great Sufi Saint Ibn Arabi called Quest for the Red Sulphur. And you also translated a book by René Guénon, one of the great traditionalist philosophers called The Great Triad. And I wanted to ask you, Do you regard, uh, and there are many echoes, I think, when you talk about the oneness of the Pythagorean-Apollonian tradition, that certainly Ibn Arabi is a great exponent of the fundamental oneness of all life. Do you regard Ibn Arabi as a particularly important figure in the history of the tradition that through your work you are bringing back into remembrance?
1: Well, you mentioned those two books, so let me very briefly try and set things straight. First of all, with Guénon, I read Guénon in the original French when I was a teenager, and I was like many, many, many other teenagers, I'm sure, in England and North America and around the world, I was looking for truth. And Guénon kept me going for, I think, a few months. And Guénon's work opened something up for me, but I also found it very, very limited. And when I was asked to translate his work, The Great Triad, into English, I did it out of thanks to Guénon because of what he gave to me. But while I was translating the book, I became even more aware of restrictions and limitations in what is often called the traditionalist point of view, and that applies not only to Guénon, but to a couple of others. It is fine. It's like an introduction to world spirituality, if you like. But to me, you're not really going to get to something. It can open up the mind to a degree. So I did it basically as a gesture of thanks, and that was it with Guénon. With Ibn al-Arabi, the biography quest for the red sulfur was a different story. I was sent by a publisher in Cambridge the original PhD written by Claude Adas in French, and I told the publisher that this had to be translated into English, and I offered to do it, and that's how this came out. It is a very, very, very important book, I feel, about a very, very extremely important spiritual being, Ibn al-Arabi. Absolutely wonderful. He is peripherally connected with a tradition that I'm really connected with myself, There are certain connections there through Ibn Masara, who was a Spaniard, who was influenced in turn by Empedocles, the Greek with whom I'm most connected. And Ibn Al-Arabi, of course, had a tremendous influence on Sufism, a completely incomparable influence. And I did that translation out of the greatest respect for a very great spiritual being. But that was not because he is specifically connected with the tradition that I am linked to.
0: Can you say what tradition you are connected
1: with? It is a tradition which intertwines with and interweaves with many other traditions. And it does so in a very mysterious way. It doesn't even have a name, although you could refer to it with names such as the Golden Chain or Primordial Tradition. It is a very, very mysterious, a very, very subtle tradition that has stood behind and helped other traditions, but in itself it is always, always kept free of structure, kept free of too much exposure, kept free of too much organization, and essentially does its work in particular places, in particular times, says what needs to be done, conveys certain messages that need to be conveyed, works on a cultural level. I need to emphasize that because this is something we really, really don't understand anymore, that spirituality is not about me. In the West, we've come to this crazy, ludicrous situation where we've actually come to believe that spirituality is about me and my progress and my spiritual evolution and my growth. And that is a complete corruption of what spirituality is. And it makes me just want to give up and stop saying or doing anything, especially in America, because it is so horrifically perverted. Spirituality is about the culture we live in. Shamans understood this very well. Shamans would never become shamans because too much suffering was involved in becoming a shaman. But then after that suffering of being initiated, of being trained and taught by the spirits out in the wilds and having to suffer that, then you had to come back as a shaman to your own community and suffer all the other indignities and misunderstandings of being forced to live on the edge of the village because people were too much afraid of your power and so on. Being a shaman is usually a very, very thankless task and through the weekend shamanic workshops that are being made available around the world now, we think it's actually something gorgeous and glamorous. Shamans understood that spirituality is for the community, and this tradition that I'm connected to never forgets that spiritual realization is always for the sake of the culture that we belong to. And so this particular tradition, this mysterious tradition that I'm connected with, It always has its finger on the pulse of civilization. It helped to bring Western civilization into existence over two and a half thousand years ago. It was there not only to witness that but to allow that to unfold through people like Empedocles, Parmenides, Pythagoras. These were, as I say in my new book, these people were culture creators. And this is something we just really don't understand anymore. These were masters of wisdom who were not masters living in another reality or in Shambhala. They were actually bringing a new culture into existence for a conscious and sacred purpose and working for that. And then they will disappear when their work is done. They will reappear to keep this tradition pure. And then they also appear at other times in the time of a civilization. They will also come back representatives of such a tradition towards the ending of a civilization because a civilization can't even come to an end, let alone come into existence. It can't even come to an end without a certain consciousness being there to allow it to come to an end.
0: So there's a a conscious birth and a conscious dying. Yes. In your book Reality, when you've discussed Parmenides and Empedocles, you then have a wonderful set of sections on Plato and Aristotle. And if I read you correctly, Plato understood what Parmenides and Empedocles were about, but because the Western mind had begun to be so obsessed with thinking, he fed that need to convey things through thought. But he was aware of the ruse in which he was involved. Whereas Aristotle took the rationalist impulse and, from your point of view, really disastrously began to move us into the rationalist worldview that covered up the real origins of greek thought and western civilization am i reading that correctly
1: on a very charitable reading you could say that you could also say that aristotle did it deliberately but no plato was actually just as trapped in the rationality as aristotle and this is something very very difficult to try and understand partly because we in the west have pinned so many of our spiritual identities and aspirations onto plato First of all, much of what is considered most spiritual in Plato, the myths, the allegories, I've shown in quite a lot of detail in various places. This was taken by him from Pythagoreans. And I also have some notes in my new book about what really happened with Plato in connection with the Pythagoreans. Plato did his best. He was sincere. He was very much thrown off balance by the death of his teacher Socrates. He went to Pythagoreans in Italy and Sicily to try and find some balance. He was given a lot of wisdom, a lot of teaching by Pythagoreans, which he then basically passed off as his own later on in his life. And in effect, he was as much of an intellectual and pretty much as much of a rationalist as Aristotle. Let's not forget Plato was the teacher and Aristotle was the disciple. And it is okay to say in a very charitable way, well, Plato did what was needed and he had to bring this original sacred tradition down a few levels to make it acceptable to people, especially in Athens. That is true, but Plato did not realize how he was rationalizing things in a very, very subtle way. And I've given quite a few particularly vivid examples of that in my book, In the Dark Places of Wisdom. And this is why I'm just opening my new book here. I opened it straight at the place. There is a point where I say that, well, let me just read the sentence. I say, the vessel of the Western intellect is cracked beyond repair, completely unable any longer to contain the fullness of life. And Plato himself, through... His rationalizing of older traditions is to a considerable extent responsible for that fracturing. And people look at the mystical, the spiritual dimensions of Plato's thought and would say, no, 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 but they don't see that is what he has taken. That is what he was given, but the way in which it was presented has led people in the West to strive for a spirituality that they never find. This is something so maybe pedantic for me to say, but I'm trying to be very real and very down-to-earth about this. I know many Platonists who are scholars or not scholars. They're always searching for it. They never find it. They get taken off into a world of longing or something or something. They never find anything. And this is one of the mirages of what was to become Western philosophy, where philosophy became this endless search for wisdom that was never accomplished. Whereas Pythagoras and the earliest Greek philosophers, they were so down to earth. They were giving incredibly powerful meditation techniques that lead you to discover the universe inside your own body. There's a huge difference there. And we are somehow so unrooted and so ungrounded in the West that we don't really appreciate the difference anymore.
0: How do you read what we know of Socrates himself as opposed to Plato?
1: Well, Socrates, as you can see through Plato, as you can see through Xenophon, Socrates was doing something very, very different from what Plato was doing. Socrates was a destroyer. He was not a creator of any kind of a system. He was not even asking deep, profound, philosophical questions in a way that can keep us going and keep us engaged for hundreds or thousands of years. He was the gadfly, and we have beautiful... Descriptions of the effect that Socrates had on the people he spoke to that are so unmistakably genuine. For example, where he said he's like a jellyfish, his questions would stun people, would paralyze people. This is a kind of profound challenge that you can say, compared to Zen, Zen koans. This is not to do with stimulating the mind, feeding the mind, getting the mind to be curious, cultivating, strengthening the mind. It's to do with paralyzing the mind. It's to do with stunning the mind. It's to do with putting the mind out of action until we are faced directly with the stillness that lies behind our busy minds.
0: So it's creative destruction.
1: Every destruction is creative. We live in a world of nature. And I don't know that there is any destruction that is not creative in one way, sooner or later.
0: Mm -hmm. Carl Jaspers called the period from 800 before the Common Era to 200 in the Common Era the Axial Age, Mm. a thousand years during which the spiritual foundations of humanity were laid simultaneously and independently. And as I was reading you, I look at, you know, Homer about 850 BCE, Isaiah 700, Ezra building walls around the Torah, 450 or so, Lao Tzu, 600, Zoroaster 600, then 570, Pythagoras and the Bhagavad Gita, 500. and so on, Confucius, Parmenides, Buddha, Empedocles. There's this extraordinary cluster of really foundational thought and revelation and experience going on in that period. You have spent so much time looking and so much deep effort reflecting on many of these traditions. Do you agree with Jaspers that this was in some sense an axial age, or do you think that's a, an artifact of his vision?
1: Well, it's neither. It's not an artifact of his vision, it's an artifact of our vision. Mm-hmm. And to me, it is not only oversimplistic, but it is a complete artifact. Mm -hmm. It's an artifact of our culture. We just go back to what fits in with our scheme, our myth of origins. For example, Zoroaster did not live in 600 BC. He lived certainly hundreds of years earlier. That was, in fact, the first piece that I ever published was an article about the dating of Zoroaster. We made him six hundred BC for very interesting reasons that I described in that paper I published. But we, we don't know what was going on pretty much before 600 BC because things were so different. Not everything was written down. Most of what was important was not written down. Even what was written down in some form or another was not necessarily preserved. And even what might have been preserved is not necessarily understood. We have... The Egyptian hieroglyphs, for example, and since the time of the Rosetta Stone and so on, we've been coming supposedly to a correct understanding of the ancient Egyptian language. But when I was studying and reading hieroglyphs years and years and years ago, I realized we've created an artifact, an artificial interpretation of Egyptian hieroglyphs, which doesn't correspond to their real meaning but we've created a certain kind of self-consistent myth with the dictionaries and the grammars and everything. We don't understand the subtleties of the hieroglyphs. There's so little that we understand. So basically, it's trying to look back through the mists of time. You can only see back so far. You can only see the hills and the mountains so far. Beyond that, it's just mist. And so we assume that the furthest mountains we can look back to are the limits of what is important. It's the same that scientists do even with the size of the cosmos. I was amazed, I remember, to read Carl Sagan and hear reputable scientists, and basically they fall for the fallacy of saying, well, as far as our telescopes can go and see, that is the extent of the cosmos. Yes. I mean, come off it, that's as far as we can see. Mm
0: -hmm. There are so many beautiful parts to your new book, A Story Waiting to Pierce You, Mongolia, Tibet, and the Destiny of the Western World. But I want to come to something that really surprised me in, in the most productive way, which is your story of the origins of the Dalai Lama and also your story of where Genghis Khan was buried and what happened to that piece of territory. So perhaps we could start with the Dalai Lama. You describe an origin of the Dalai Lamas that I really didn't know about.
1: Well, I'm a little bit reluctant to talk about it because there are many people around the world who have a very serious commitment to Tibetan Buddhism. So I want to be very careful and respectful in talking about the history or the origins of Tibetan Buddhism, or say of the Gelukpa lineage, which is what the Dalai Lamas belong to. It's difficult for me to go into this zone, partly because there are so many attachments and so many identifications to how things should have been, and also not many people really know about, say, the role played by the Mongols in the genesis of the Dalai Lama tradition and institution. And this gets into a very, very thorny subject. There are enormous, enormous issues here about how certain senses of spiritual authority have been based, as we know, on certain narratives, historical narratives. And I have given certain pointers in the book which people are welcome to follow up on. There are all sorts of complexities and intricacies here. And when they come into play in the genesis of an institution as important as the Dalai Lama institution... It's tricky, and one has to be very careful what to say and what not to.
0: Mm -hmm. It's an interesting thing, though, that you've published on this, but in an interview you'd prefer not to
1: go into it. Well, let me put it this way. I said in the book what was needed, because this was something I came to without any wish to go there. I was asked to write this book. Mm -hmm. Inwardly I was asked to write it, and I was taken on a certain journey which was the journey of writing this book. And I came to this point of having to write about the genesis of certain Tibetan Buddhist institutions. And I was reluctant to go there because I saw the deeper issues. I saw tremendous suffering. There is tremendous darkness around certain issues which I don't want to go into. So I put in the book the minimum, the basic that was needed for the story to be told, For me to go on with it now is not necessary because what needed to be included for the story to be told is in the book.
0: Mm -hmm. And I will respect that. But perhaps we can talk about where Genghis Khan was buried. Do you have the book with you? Yes, I do. If we could uh, turn to page 77 Mm -hmm. and either reading it or just telling it as you wish... The history of the piece of land where Genghis Khan was buried and what's happened to it since the Soviets arrived. Could you talk about that?
1: Yes, let me just quickly read because it's only a few sentences and then I'll add a couple of comments. Mm -hmm. So I'm describing how after Genghis Khan finally died, he was buried and the place where he was buried has remained a secret very, 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 very closely and fiercely guarded secret. Uh, The body was hidden away with strictest orders. I'm reading now from the book. With strictest orders that the location of the burial would never be disclosed. A vast area of land was sealed off in every direction all around. According to the practice and tradition of the Khans, it was called the Great Tabu. The whole region was constantly guarded by warriors. Anyone who happened to stumble inside it by accident was killed, so was anyone who deliberately tried getting into the area, even just to create a little shrine, a place of worship. Nature was left to her own devices. And this went on for almost 800 years. Finally, the Soviets arrived. But they had their own reasons for keeping everyone away, because they were terrified that the memory and heartland of Genghis Khan could become a focus for some national resistance. So the great taboo was given a new name, the highly restricted area, and for good measure, surrounded by another even more gigantic restricted area under the direct command and supervision of Moscow. They carried out nuclear tests, dumped weapons, created a toxic junkyard. They added a big tank base so that they could rest a little more assured that no one would ever slip inside by accident. Then they arrested, tortured, systematically killed every Mongol who even dared do any research into his or her own history. And then I go on to make the point, which, as I'm here, I may as well just add the next paragraph. And without a doubt, I go on, you are bound to feel sure that nothing so exotic, so utterly foreign or monstrously barbaric could ever exist in our modern Western world. But the exact opposite is true, because we live under the shadow of a taboo so pervasive and well-guarded that even its name is kept secret. We have our own great taboo, our own highly restricted area. This is the taboo against discovering the sacred source of the world we live in, against finding what life is really for, against knowing why civilizations are born or die. And then I go on towards the end of that section to pass on the traditions we have from some very interesting sources to say that Genghis Khan in effect never made a military or other decision without being shown what he needed to do in a state of ecstasy which I find quite interesting, because for me, essentially, ecstasy is a state where the personality is not there, where we are open to something greater than ourselves.
0: Just a few pages later, on page 80, Mm -hmm. you say something that we've already touched on, the paragraph that begins, civilizations never just happen.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Could you read those next two paragraphs?
1: Well, shall we stay with Genghis Khan for the moment? Oh, sure. Those are perhaps the most important paragraphs in the whole book, and I wouldn't like to come to them inadvertently. Very good. But with Genghis Khan, I made the point that we have our own taboos, which we are not willing really to investigate seriously. We're much more comfortable going around, studying other religions, taking initiations from shamans in the Amazon jungle or from somebody in the Himalayas. We're not really willing, and I have to say this because this is something I'm very, very much up against. I have my nose right up against the window pane here in this country, trying, trying, trying to get spiritual seekers, other intelligent people in America to say, can we look, can we really go back and look? and see what does it mean if Western civilization has a sacred origin. What does that mean for us now? And it's unbearably difficult because people don't want to go back. We're so concerned now in this culture about jumping into the new and creating something new and newer and newest. We don't want to see that maybe we have what the indigenous people, we have our own original instructions, and when we forget those instructions, as Plato already did, not to mention Aristotle, not to mention us. When we forget the simplicity and immediacy of those original instructions, no good can come out of anything that we do. And the more we try to create new, 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 the bigger the mess we make. So this is one of the huge problems. Are we willing to face the taboo, this great taboo, that our Western civilization might have a sacred source? And I actually don't know of people in this country who are willing to take this up and really say, let's really, really try to come to grips with this. People are interested in it if it has a certain benefit for their own lives and helps them with their meditation or so and so. But this is a huge cultural taboo. And I'm afraid that we are just burying ourselves, just nailing ourselves into a coffin in Western culture because we will not face up to this. And the other side to it, I described and you asked me about, this area where Genghis Khan was buried. This was called the Great Taboo. This was a, a very, very strong tradition among the Khans in that part of the world. The Khan will traditionally be buried in a place where no one else can go near. Nobody is allowed to interfere. It becomes sacred earth, sacred territory. You just let the body rot. You let nature look after itself. You're not even allowed to build a shrine. I mean, that's quite something. Even the idea of a shrine, if somebody tried to come into that holy taboo, that area around Genghis Khan's burial place, and build a shrine and worship and offer respect, even that person would be killed because it was, no, just keep everything human out of the way. And there is a great mystery about that because really this is saying there is a point where the earth isn't even interested in our good thoughts, not to mention our bad thoughts. That all of even our best intentions, there is a place, there are certain places on the earth, certain places inside ourselves, where even our best intentions are a violation and an intrusion. And I think, again, this is something that we need to look at, because it's so interesting to see how, first of all, for hundreds of years, the Mongols preserved that taboo area intact and then the soviets came along for their own reasons and they preserved it intact now what is happening is that the japanese are going with their new archaeological equipment and their western technologies they are determined to find genghis khan's burial place
0: how fascinating
1: and it was the japanese first now it's europeans and it is violation again yes But they won't see it as that. They'll say, oh, well, this is exploration. This is science. This is progress. We want to help the Mongolians to rediscover their own heritage. And unfortunately, some Mongolians are becoming so westernized that they get disoriented by it. They don't know what's happening. And so we are using science once again to violate the sacred.
0: Yes. Peter, we're coming to the end here. And I'd like to let you choose, but I was drawn to these paragraphs on page 80 as a way of closing. Does that seem like a good closing place to you?
1: I would say, yes. Ask me a specific question, something that really, really means something, because I'd like to say this about this new book. This new book is not about facts. It is about destruction. It's about transformation. We, in the modern world, we skip from facts to facts. We're never satisfied. We're always curious. It's a wonderful attitude in a way, but it never really brings us face to face with something very powerful inside ourselves. And this book is, actually, it's energetically a destruction of all that, skipping from one thing to another that we tend to do in our lives. And in a way, it's energetically the attempt to take that away because we can face the starkness of the situation that we're in now. And that's starkly terrifying how much we have messed up. And it's starkly beautiful, the stark simplicity of how traditions are brought from the East to the West and the stark simplicity of the urgency of remembering this and being true to it. So if you have a very, very specific starkly simple question you would like to ask me about these two paragraphs, I'll be delighted to try and answer with as much starkness as I am capable of. This is what's needed now.
0: Well then I'll read the two paragraphs because my question comes right out of them and they read as follows. Civilizations never just happen. They are brought into existence quite consciously with unbelievable compassion and determination from another world. Then the job of people experienced in ecstasy is to prepare the soil for them, carefully sow and plant them, care for them, watch them grow. And each culture is just like a tree whose essence and whole potential are already contained in the seed. Nothing during the course of a civilization is ever discovered or invented or created which was not already present inside that seed. So my question is this. There will be readers who are dismayed and simply don't accept that at all. There will be readers who are certain that is true. There will be readers who see it as a beautiful poetic statement, but will not be certain at all of its veracity at the level of how civilizations are actually brought into being. And yet, that is profoundly the place from which you write, and your conviction. So my simple, stark question is how that perspective, which is so distant from 98% of what passes for knowledge in this world, how you manage to hold it with the clarity that you hold it in the face of the enormous opposition to it?
1: First of all, thank you so much for asking the question. I really appreciate it. Secondly, I have no choice, because that consciousness that I wrote from and what I said, that has been forced into me. It was just rammed down my throat. There's no way that I could resist that. That is me now. What's left of me is that awareness. I know it to be true. I've experienced it. I've experienced it in a way that I can be experiencing that reality that I write from in those paragraphs and at the same time be aware of this collective life that we live in and be aware that that collective life has no reality whatsoever. It is As Parmenides and Empedocles said, it is a total illusion. And what can I do about that illusion? I can't do anything, but I have to say it hurts because I don't mind being up against the people who are not interested in spirituality. And this is one of the things that I find very painful because somewhere I have a memory of what spirituality used to be in traditional cultures. And traditionally there were the people who are not interested in spirituality, although many people in traditional cultures are profoundly devout, whether they are bakers or chariot drivers, it doesn't matter, or warriors. In warfare, there can be a profound spirituality too, which is something that again we've forgotten in the West with disastrous, disastrous results, but that's a whole other story. But traditionally, there were the people who were not really interested in spirituality, and then there were the keepers of a certain spiritual wisdom, which was kept pure. And in modern culture now, and especially in North America, that purity has been violated to such an extent that I am just staggered and deeply, deeply hurt. And to be honest with you, it often makes me weep. Just the sheer amount of Ego that has crept into spirituality because I know there are people who will disagree with those two paragraphs you read because they want to say, Well, no, when I make something now, or when BMW comes up with its latest model of the 320, God knows whatever it is, that wasn't implicit in the DNA of Western culture. That is our creativity, it's ours, and this is what we've been encouraged to do in America, especially. It's mine. It's mine. Look how great I am. Look how much I'm achieving, even on a spiritual level. Look, I'm going to bring this new culture into existence. I'm going to create this new global awareness. I'm going to co-create. It's all about what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do. And what I've been shown is that that is the problem, all of that I. When that all eventually just starts to go, then we are in a position possibly to intuit what the future really is and what we really need to be doing now. But we live in a, you know, the Hindus call it the Kali Yuga. It's an age of tremendous spiritual darkness we're in now. And we can't even talk about God nowadays without being accused of being a fundamentalist. Because we don't really have the experience of God anymore. And if we do, we try and repress it or put it into a certain format or something. And that divine reality is just not a part of the picture in the West anymore not even a part of the spiritual picture you notice how often now in discussions about spirituality it's all about what we're going to do and what we're going to co-create I've never known anybody who actually asks if the divine has invited us to co-create we just assume that because we're so wonderful we're going to be a part of it all maybe we're not so it's for me immensely difficult and I often want to just give up. I've said what I said in this book and I was very aware when I wrote this book that all I needed to do was write it. I actually saw that if I just had one printed copy of this book in my hand that would be the end, that would be all that's needed. What people do and say about it, I can't do anything because it's to do with a certain level of experience that I was writing from. You know, when you are saying about Ibn al-Arabi, he wrote from a certain spiritual experience, which made him aware of the hand of God behind everything. That's, that's the origin of everything that Ibn al-Arabi wrote about. His poetry, his texts, everything. And we don't understand that anymore. I was told last summer by a very spiritual person who came up to meet me that I had no right to write those words and I had no right to make such absolute claims at the end of my book. So what am I supposed to say? I just go quiet.
0: Peter Kingsley, author of A Story Waiting to Pierce You, Mongolia, Tibet and the destiny of the Western world. Thank you for being with us again at The New School. To find out more about Peter Kingsley and his work, please visit peterkingsley.org. Thank you for joining us at The New School at Commonweal.